This is a Bible study on chapter 21 from the book of Acts and probably going into 22. When I looked at 21, I didn't have a whole lot of text underlined like other chapters, so I thought I better read it first. Um, this is the second time I've read the book of Acts. The first time that I read it was back in 2019, and I may have gone back to different chapters of Acts, but reading it completely from the beginning to the end, this is only the second time that I've done it. So I wasn't sure if I missed something or just never went back to this chapter, but I've, so I pre-read it and then I realized that chapter 21 runs into chapter 22. So it's hard to figure out where it, where to stop it. But, and then because of what was contained in it, it's more or less a story about um, Paul's travel. I went ahead and I just kept reading all the way to the end. So there's not probably a lot of commentary because this is more like historical documentation of what happened in Paul's travel. It does have some of the Holy Spirit's involved. Actually, that's what it's all supposed to be about. The study Bible that I have has some interesting side paragraphs that I'll also read because it explains a lot of the text or the customs, which you wouldn't get unless you understand. So it's really helpful with that. And um, the summary at the end basically tells us that Luke, who is the medical doctor who wrote the book of Acts and also wrote one of the Gospels, um, he wrote this not so much as a story about Paul, because we also know that he talked about Peter too and the things that happened with Peter, but it was more about how the Holy Spirit was working through Paul and the things that the Holy Spirit was doing. So throughout this historical documentation of Paul's continued travels, you will see um, how the Holy Spirit does things. There's evidence of the Holy Spirit interacting all along the way. And then there's just some details, historical details about what happened and a summary from Paul a few different times. So it's all good, but I'm going to try to get through this because there's more books that I want to get to. And so without delaying this any further, um, dear God, please be with us as we read this and please bring to mind anything of importance as we go along. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 21. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patera. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days, though the Spirit, or through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Okay, I'll stop right there because there's some things. Okay, first of all, on when they're going back to Jerusalem, what I noticed is that he's not going, the rest of this journey is not primarily to edify Gentiles or Jews for the most part. Um, there is some of that about about Jesus, to let them know about Jesus. But it looks like he's seeking out other believers that he's staying with, and he's going back to them. So um, 
anyway, this this group, it's it's really interesting too because as we read the Bible and study it more, there are certain things that tend to stand out, like what I've found because others have pointed it out and now I see it is that certain numbers are significant and not every single number is significant, but just listen for dates like seven, like seven days. Like that is, that is, there's a pattern and throughout the Bible, like why would these things be written um, with seven days? Um, it's yes, it could be seven days. I mean, like when somebody takes a vacation, it might be seven days, but the Bible emphasizes seven days very often. And if you, there's a lot of theories that go back to the creation, go back to Genesis and the creation in seven days. And it also ties into the, the end, the last week of seven days that was prophesied by Daniel that there would be a seven, the final seven. There's like the final seven years before Jesus's return. And then there's also like six six days is also significant because on the seventh day is when Jesus begins to reign. And then there's also the patterns and numbers of three and four days. And you'll see that pattern or numbers, those often pointed out in scripture. Now they'll be really specific about those dates. And then you'll also see in scripture that says a number of days went by. So they're not even counted. But the ones that are emphasized are often symbolic numbers. So there's probably more to it than what we realize. And maybe over time, as we read scripture, all of a sudden it will become clear. But these aren't accidental things that show up in scripture you will start to see over time. And it's not every single one of them. Not every single one of them means more than what it says. But just pay attention to those numbers and see how they come up in Scripture, throughout Scripture, throughout the entire Bible. Just pay attention to those things. And as you read, Scripture interprets Scripture. So often, even if you're reading in the Old Testament, it'll tie into something in the New Testament and vice versa. So that's another thing that's evidence of this book being divinely inspired by the authors, that all of these connections get made and all of these connections, literal happenings and symbolic happenings. They, and then they're foreshadowing of future events, like the ones in the Old Testament foreshadow things that come up in the New Testament. So it's, it's just amazing. It just shows how... Um, this Bible that we have is way more than just a book. It is definitely, there's something spiritual in it. And the fact that it changes lives when people read it, when people hear it, when their eyes are opened, there's something more to it. It's not just a book. So that was a long statement there. But okay, so these people getting back to Paul, these, so he sought out disciples and he stayed, the, stayed with them for seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So these are disciples. They have the Holy Spirit and they get word from the Spirit about things. So 
here's something that was interesting. It's on the side comment of the Bible. It said, did Paul disobey the Holy Spirit? So these believers are saying the Holy Spirit, they're telling Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. So here's what the study Bible says. No, Paul felt bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, even though the Spirit warned him of hardships awaiting him there. And that's from chapter 20 verses 22 to 23. So when his companions urged him through the spirit not to go to Jerusalem and a prophet in Caesarea did the same, they weren't telling Paul anything new. Paul listened, agreed that it would be dangerous and followed the spirit's leading to go to Jerusalem anyway. So that's kind of interesting. You know, there he's getting multiple. That also happens with the Holy Spirit. When something comes to a person who is a believer, who has received the Holy Spirit, and maybe they will get what they think might be a message from the Holy Spirit, but they're not sure. And then it will often be repeated three times. Okay, so I'm just seeing just now, I'm seeing this evidence that in this, like Paul got the message first from the Holy Spirit, that there was a warning about going to Jerusalem and it was going to be tough. Then he has the believers, that's number two. And then number three is when a prophet in Caesarea did the same thing. So Paul got two confirmations. There were a total of three, just like we were mentioning before, the number three. It's very significant. And I see this often, even in my own life, with with things like this where God will put something in front of you three times through godly people. You will hear the same thing. In my faith journey, that started happening to me, and I noticed it. Before I noticed all these patterns, um, I just would notice that three times something would happen. And it is evident in my own, like I personally experienced that. So, And then to see it in the Bible, that's also affirming as well. And especially just now, that is something that I just noticed and I didn't notice before I am speaking right now. So that's pretty cool. Anyway, go back to scripture. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city. And there on the beach, we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and then stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. I'm going to stop there because one of the seven is capitalized, seven. So Thankfully, the study Bible tells us why this is significant. So who were the seven? The seven were the seven men chosen from among the first followers of Jesus to distribute food to and care for the widows of the church in Jerusalem. And that's from Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Okay, so he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now that's a random detail. I don't know what the significance of that is. But this is just odd. And maybe someday reading this, it will be clear. But he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. That just, it it doesn't say anything more about that, except that he had four daughters, unmarried, 
unmarried. So unmarried seems to be significant too. Um, especially when you think about like the virgins, um, the parable of the virgins, the 10 virgins that Jesus told, you just wonder if there's some significance there. Um, and maybe someday we'll figure that out, but it, the study Bible doesn't really comment about that because it doesn't really tell us like, why is that put there? Because it doesn't say that they, they said anything, you know, the daughters said anything. It just said that they prophesied. So it was like, why even put that in the scripture? Because it has, you know, there's nothing that comes from it. It's just like a statement. Oh yeah. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Who knows? Okay. But what does it mean to prophesize? Prophesying was done extensively in the early church. It was a spiritual gift, a supernatural empowering to build up God's family. Those with this gift either proclaimed to God's people new truth from God or challenged them with existing scriptural truths. Both men and women possess this gift. This gift is talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 4 through 5. So going back to scripture. After we had been there a number of days, see, that's what I'm talking about, the number of days. It's very random. It's not significant. But after we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit in this says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you reaping and weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he, when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Manasseh, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. So here's another thing about people get word from the Holy Spirit and in everything, it's about submission to God. Whatever it is, you know, you have to eventually look at it. God's will will be done, like no matter what. So we can pray all we want for certain things. God doesn't always answer our prayers the way we want them, but God's will will be done. And the thing that we need to remember in that is that if we are obedient to God, meaning we are showing God that we love him by our obedience, he will work all things for our good. So he does that for his children. He works all things out for our good. And we don't need to be short-sighted about here and now because he's promised something greater about the kingdom of God where we will all live in eternity. So even if we don't get our prayers answered here today, then we still have the future that we know that God blesses those who remain in obedience to him. So um, let's see, that's 
uh, go back to scripture. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have so they can have their heads shaved, then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, and from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality." The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the, when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. So what did, here's a question and answer. What did purification involve? Apparently these men had made a temporary Nazarite vow, a self-imposed pledge of special service to God and had become unclean prior to completing their pledge. To correct it, they had to purify themselves. This meant waiting seven days, then shaving their heads on the seventh day and making offerings, two doves or pigeons and a male lamb for each on the eighth day. Other sacrifices were required at the conclusion of their Nazarite vows, both a male and female lamb, a ram, and a grain and a drink offering. So, um... It says, why did Paul revert to an Old Testament ritual? Paul's behavior illustrates poignantly that he would do anything and be anything to, the, to win people to Jesus. He says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23 also. Here that meant accommodate, accommodating Jewish culture. He also hoped to unite Jew. Jewish and Gentile Christians, creating a peaceful atmosphere between the two groups. Okay, when arrested, when the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimius, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Now, going back to the questions and answers. Were foreigners not welcome at the temple? Non-Jews, also called Gentiles, were allowed in the outer court of the temple called the Court of the Gentiles, but they could not go in any farther. This was intended to protect the sanctity of the temple. Rome granted Jews the rare prerogative 
to execute anyone who defiled this rule, even Roman citizens. Inscriptions in Greek and Latin on stone slabs, two of which have been discovered by archaeologists, were placed on the barrier between the inner and the outer courts. They read, Any foreigner who passes this point will be be responsible for his own death. Isn't that crazy? I mean, we're kind of living in times like that right now. Not exactly, but I mean like where people get killed for their beliefs, that part of it. So this is just really interesting reading this right now. Going back to scripture, the whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. Now I underlined that, immediately the gates were shut because this is kind of interesting too because it has to do with the... um, you know, the city having gates, but in a symbolic way also, when Jesus returns, there's a point where the gates are shut. And um, it's just, you know, that like I said, there's a foreshadowing of future events found in scripture. And when Jesus returns, you know, there's going to be people that have prepared and that people who have not prepared. And it has to do with the Holy Spirit. So this does tie into, you know, when Jesus returns, because the Holy Spirit is required. Those with the Holy Spirit can be inside the gates. Those without the Holy Spirit are shut out. And you find that from Jesus in the parable of the 10 virgins, because they had, they had lamps that were kept lit with oil. Oil symbolically indicates the receiving of the Holy Spirit, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So it's significant. It's a detail here that does have relevance to something later. Going back to scripture, while they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. That reminds me a lot of the way Jesus was like the crowd just shooting, you know, shouting, crucify him, crucify him. It's kind of like, and another thing that um, when God decided to use Paul, he said that he would show Paul how he had to suffer with his name. And so it's kind of interesting that some of the things that Jesus went through, Paul is also going through. And it's almost like God forewarned Paul, you're going to see the suffering that I went through, you're going to experience it too, for my name. And Paul is, it's just kind of interesting again, you know, when he has this, this vision and, and he's used as an instrument and, and yet, and yet Paul is obedient. He goes through and it doesn't matter what he suffers. He still proclaims about Jesus. And it's so ironic because before Paul was changed by 
and we'll read more about it, so I won't get into the detail if you just started with this chapter. But before Paul got changed, he was persecuting Christians. So going back to scripture, as the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied, aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Okay, I'm going to stop that. Stop there because um, this is another thing. Uh, Where did this thing about the Egyptian who started a revolt come from? I mean, how did that get tied to Paul? So thankfully, the study guide has a little paragraph on that. Who was the Egyptian Paul was mistaken for? Josephus, a Jewish historian during that time, reported a story about an ambitious Egyptian false prophet who led a large band of ruffians to the Mount of Olives in AD 54. He promised the collapse of, so AD 54, that's about 14 years after Jesus was crucified. So he promised the collapse of the Jerusalem walls and the overthrow of Roman power at his command. But when the Roman army marched against him and his followers, hundreds were killed, the crowd scattered, and the Egyptian leader escaped. So again, the other thing is, Jesus said there would be false prophets who came after him. So this is another example of a false prophet. So, okay, going back to scripture, um, Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Sicilia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak in, to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. So why did Aramaic language quiet them up? Aramaic was the common language. Hearing Paul speak it caught them by surprise. The unruly crowd immediately identified him as one of their own. That a Jew, not from Jerusalem, could speak Aramaic as well as Greek impressed them. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Sicilia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as, as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison as the high priest and all the council members can testify, can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring those people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. 
a man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, wash your sins away, calling on his name. So I'll stop there again. That's what Jesus said. I mean, Paul was already be he was Paul was already like trained in righteousness. He was following the law. He was one of the righteous people, but it said he needed to be baptized and wash your sins away. Of course, he was persecuting Christians. He was killing them. He was putting them in prison or approving of their killing. And so he needed to be cleansed, wash your sins away and calling on his name. So the name of Jesus. And as Jesus told his disciples that they should be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So going back to scripture, when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell in, this is Paul talking, when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing them. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now I want to, I underlined um, the verse 20 because it said, and when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. This is uh, found in prior chapters, the documentation, because it talked about Stephen, you know, he looked up and he, he had the face of an angel, how they described him. And he looked up to the sky and he said, this, the heavens opened up and he saw, um, he saw Jesus standing next to God the Father on the throne in heaven. And um, anyway, it, it did say that, and Saul stood there. And that was Paul's name before his name was changed. In scripture, it just, it changes from one to another, but he apparently, God often gives people new names when they become changed people. And um, this is, you know, Paul is the new name of Saul, but it was Saul, and you know he's even admitting here he was the one that was there when Stephen was being stoned and killed. So going back to scripture, the crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, "Rid the earth of him! He's not fit to live!" As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged, just like Jesus. Remember and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. 
What are you going to do? He asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. But, and then Paul replied, but I was born a citizen. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. The commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. So I'll end here and we'll start chapter 23 next.